For this cause, Paul wrote, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. That's Paul's words, quoting from Genesis 2. as Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5. The mystery of marriage. This mystery, he says, is great. The most profound, intimate, and sacred of all human relationships. Marriage, marriage is the closest bond that is possible between two human beings. It transcends every other form of human union on earth, every other covenant that could possibly be made between two people. Mike Mason, in his book entitled that, The Mystery of Marriage, says it like this, marriage is living with glory. It is living with an embodied revelation, with a daily unveiling and unraveling of the mystery of love in such a way that our intense yet shy curiosity about such thing is in constant state of being satisfied, being fed, yet without ever being sated. It is living with a mystery that is fully visible, with a flesh and blood person who can be touched and held, questioned and probed, examined and loved to our heart's content, but who nevertheless proves to be utterly and impenetrably mysterious, infinitely searchable. End quote. The mystery of marriage. We will learn in a few weeks that this mystery of marriage is more profound than we could ever imagine. So we'll hold that from that text in Ephesians. This series that we are in is not a series on marriage, but it is a series on God's complementary design of men and women. God's grand design that we've called it, his intentional, beautiful design of two sexual kinds, male and female, equal in dignity and personhood as made in his image, yet different and complementary in nature. And nowhere is this complementarity Seen and expressed and lived out than in the context of marriage. This closest of all human relationships when the two become one. And in order to express this oneness as God intended, there must be on the part of the husband and wife a commitment to living out the relationship in accordance with God's grand and good design, namely what we have seen both from Genesis 2 and now specifically as we're looking at the New Testament, namely that design means the loving, sacrificial leadership, headship of the husband and the dignified, beautiful submission, helpership of the wife. And in order to help us see how this Design is lived out in marriage. We are looking firstly at 1 Peter 
chapter 3. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, you can open there with me. I'll also put in a moment the text up on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 3, submission and honor in marriage. And this is part 2. We looked last Sunday and thought on Peter's instruction to wives in this context of submission and what that means to right leadership. So that was last week. Today, we focus on Peter's instruction to husbands. To husbands. Let's read it. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read the whole paragraph here, though we'll just focus on the last verse. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be only external or merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That verse, verse 7, is our entire focus this morning to husbands. Invite us all to listen, even younger men, boys, not married, all of us, to God's instruction. Let me begin with this question for sake of context. Why does Peter include husbands? Why does Peter include instruction to husbands in this context? I ask that because as you read 1 Peter 2 and 3, this is somewhat of a digression from his sequence of instructions. So last Sunday we went over the context, but let me just remind you of this. The context of Peter's instruction is his exhortation to Christians. He's writing to Christians who are suffering for their faith at various levels. And he exhorts them to exhibit a lifestyle distinct from yet attractive to the hostile culture in which they live. So that's the lead command way back in chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12. I urge you as, remember this exile, aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. This is his main command here. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good works as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. So you do exhibit an excellent lifestyle that is distinct from yet attractive to the hostile culture. And that, Peter says, includes submission. And then he gives these commands relating to proper submission to authority 
as part of the excellent behavior that is winsome. So we saw that he started in verse 13, submit yourselves to the government, to every human institution, to the king and those in authority, even though it's not a pro-Christian government, anything but submit yourself there. And then we saw in verse 18, his second command to submit, submit to your servants. He's thinking of house servants, submit to your masters with all respects, even if they're not very gentle, even if they're not fair. An unfair submit. So these are difficult situations you submit in, yet do so in a winsome way. And that's what leads him to chapter 3 and verse 1. Why does he include marriage in this context? Well, his specific angle here is to wives submitting to your husbands even if they are not Christians. So here's a less than ideal situation for wives in marriage when their husband's not a believer. He's not a Christian. He rejects the gospel. Maybe he's hostile to your faith. But the same principle we saw last week applies your behavior, your excellent behavior that includes submission, rightly. May it be winsome. May it win them. That's what he says. May they be one to the gospel, to Christ without a word. So, so that's what he's been arguing. So we'd expect now, verse 7, as he moves on, another command either to submit in some hostile culture way, submit, or at least a general, maybe general instruction about excellent behavior as a compelling gospel witness. Because look at verse eight, that's where he goes. He's going to, he's going to conclude this section by saying to sum up in case you miss it. Here's my summary. Let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, Kind-hearted and humble, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. He's thinking again in the context of a hostile culture, this excellent behavior. Verse 7 is out of place. You see it? It doesn't flow naturally in his thought of commands and or to unbelieving culture. Why does he include it? So let me say first why he didn't include it. Not, not to command them, that is husbands, to submit in a difficult situation as an attractive gospel witness. That's not the aim of his commands here. Not a command for them to submit in a hostile situation. He doesn't even give the command that here's what your behavior is like if your wife's an unbeliever. He's assuming their wife is a believer. You see that? That's not why he gives the instruction in verse 7. Notice verse 7, you husbands likewise, he does not repeat the command to submit. When he says likewise, he just means also. <laughs> he's continuing in the same area of discussion. He talked about wives, now he's going to address husbands. But never in the Bible would husbands be told to submit to their wives. We looked at that word last week, what it means to voluntarily place one under authority so he doesn't repeat that command that's notable i say that because i fear today that there's a lot of misconception about this phrase mutual submission that is used quite frequently when it comes to marriage mutual submission we'll talk more about that in ephesians 5 but that's not what he's saying here 
Again, he doesn't give any command in relation to an unbelieving wife. She's a believer. She's a fellow heir of the grace. So why does he include it? Well, I think it's what we all feel. It's only fair. <laughs> He's addressed the wives for six weeks. It's a, I'll put it this way, it's a counterpart to the wives' submission. Why does he include it? To clarify, here's why, I think, the manner in which a husband exercises leadership or authority in relation to his wife's submission. That's why he's including it. Yes, he's departing from his subject, but he must include it. He has just talked for six verses about what submission looks like and means within a marriage, even if the husband's an unbeliever. But now he's going to address believing husbands, and he must give the counterpart to clarify the manner in which Husbands are to exercise this authority, this leadership. Again, the authority or leadership of the husband is assumed. It's based on that submission of the wife. The wife places herself under this leadership or under this authority. So the husband, by God's design, has that. It's assumed. It's implied in the wife's submission. It's interesting that he gives no command to lead. Now, husbands, lead your wives. Now, husbands, exercise authority over your wives. He doesn't say that. It's, it's assumed. It's implied in the wife's submission. What he is after is the manner of that leadership. The manner. What's it look like? How is it expressed? But he has to include it. So I just want you to see the reason I take that time. Verse 7 is out of place in the flow of his thought, which gives you a sense of its importance. That he's going to depart from his topic to address husbands. That's why it's only one verse. It's not part of his main flow of thought here. He gave six verses to wives because he has that unique context in mind. But he has to take it aside and say, husbands, I've got to say this to you in this context. Because the potential for distortion in your leadership, I think, is so great. The potential to get this wrong when you hear about a wife's submission, then I want to address it. So just note that, the significance of him taking this aside to address husbands specifically. The husband's responsibility in leading is weighty. And it is prone to distortion. So he has to address it. Considerate leadership. It's the heading. Consider it. Again, the leadership is assumed by the wife's submission, but he's getting after the manner. Considerate leadership. That's the phrase Wayne Grudem used in his article on this paragraph, and I borrow it because I think it is a good summary of what he is saying. He's, he's wanting husbands to consider your wives, who they are. Consider it. In fact, your translation, if you have an NIV translation, might say something like, live with your wives in a considerate way. That's a paraphrase, not exactly what it says, but it's getting at it. Consider her. Consider it. So we want to look at it, just that verse. Okay. Now I'm going to follow the New American Standard Bible translation because I think they get it right. I think it's the best way to translate this. Because it shows that there are really two exhortations he has to husbands. 
He gives two exhortations to live with your wives according to knowledge. We'll get to that. And to grant her honor. Two exhortations. Live with your wives in this way and treat her or grant her honor. And both of those exhortations are followed by this little as clause. As, and he's going to say, I want you to do this in view of this. So two exhortations followed by these two clauses that begin with this as. He's saying, I want you to do this in view of this perspective. I think that's how this sentence lays out. So let's just see them. I'll give you the two exhortations, and then we'll close with this third kind of incentive. So number one, here's the first one. Treat her according to knowledge. Treat her according to knowledge. Or live with her. That's literally what it says. Live with her. And that's what you do in marriage. You live with your spouse. All the time. You dwell with your spouse. That's a good description of marriage. You live with, I'm just using the word treat to keep it equal here. Treat your wives, mine reads, in an understanding way. Literally, it just says treat her according to knowledge. So the question, what knowledge? What knowledge? As, you see what he does now? So that little as clause, I think, is going to give the content of the knowledge. I want you to treat her according to knowledge, what not, like this knowledge, that with this perspective, as, and he says two things, as a weaker vessel, as with a weaker vessel, the feminine one. <laughs> as with a weaker vessel, the feminine one. Very interesting. There, verse 7, he uses, he says, with a weaker vessel, mine says, since she is a woman. It's not the word, normal word for wife or woman that we would expect there. It's the adjective that seems to be getting at the nature of womanhood. Feminine character. It's part of the knowledge you're to have as you treat her with this knowledge as a weaker vessel as the feminine one. So I, I would summarize. Here's my summary. Treat her in accordance with her nature and role as a woman by God's design. That's what you're to have in view. Treat her in accordance with her nature and role as a woman by God's design. That little phrase, that Unusual phrasing he's using as with a weaker vessel, the feminine one, I think is putting us right back to the design of God. He's hinting here at God's design, what we've been looking at. The reason I like this text, first Peter three, the reason I went here in our study is because Peter's, I think he's hinting at the design of men and women and relating it to marriage. That's what we've been studying this whole series. When he uses the word vessel, you see it, a weaker vessel. Vessel is used as human beings created by God. It's the idea, the vessel. God created, God shaped us. Human beings created by God intended for his use. Men and women are vessels. And so he's thinking back to that creation again of God in this unique sense. So he says of the woman, husband, I want you to have this knowledge that she as the weaker vessel, the feminine one. Now, again, I, I know. Just to read that. Did you, did Peter just say she's weaker, <laughs> weaker vessel? This would not fly. I know in 
any contemporary culture today. It's just the offense. We immediately think inferior. What does he mean? The weaker vessel. I think he's just speaking generally. Now, it's obvious when it comes, what we'd all know, the makeup of men and women, our physical strength. I mean, that's an obvious difference of weaker and stronger, comparatively, in the general sense. Not that every man is stronger than every woman, that's what he's saying. But in the general sense, as God made us, right? An obvious physical strength. I mean, that's, we see it all over the news today. We're in this confused world with gender and gender transitions and gender dysphoria. And what's at the heart of, of so much of these debates in sports, right? Aren't we seeing it? Swimming, different things. Right. We have this protest now against women saying, I don't I don't want to swim against a man. Right. That's unfair. We see this people pushing back now against this. And we just all know that I was thankful. My daughter was in the track meet, state track meet last week, and it's boys and girls doing it. But they go at different times. I was glad she didn't have to run against the men, against the boys. We, we understand that. The physical differences, the physical strength, right? So he's just saying, I think, what is relatively obvious by God's creation. But I don't think it's just physical strength. I think it's more holistic as he's thinking of God's design of her role as a suitable helper. Remember, he's just talked about the, the wife being in submission to her husband. So she's, she's under the position of authority. She is in the weaker position when it comes to that authority. She's in the more vulnerable position. And husbands are supposed to know that and treat her accordingly, understanding this weaker vessel idea, her, her position under authority. That is, as God, part of this God's design of the wife as the suitable helper, she finds her protection, her provision, her security, her peace in relationship with her husband. This interdependence upon her husband. That's her nature and that's her role. And husbands, you need to see that and understand it and recognize it. So our culture just doesn't do us any help here by trying to say there's zero difference, right, between men and women. Or trying to prove that women are always as strong as men. Yeah, women are exceedingly strong in so many ways that men aren't. We know that. We, we go through, But just in this general sense, as it relates to God's design and the wife in this relationship, we need to believe that. He's just stating what is obvious based on God's design. So here are the let me just give you these two implications. When he says, husbands, I want you to to treat her or to live with her according to this knowledge. What does that imply? What's he implying there? First, a husband's leadership is not domineering or harsh use of authority. A husband's leadership is not a domineering or harsh use of authority. Live with her as you understand God's design of her. Don't exploit it. Don't take advantage of it. Don't take advantage of this weakness. Don't use it for your selfish ends. That's why he's going to follow this exhortation with show her honor. Right? Show her honor. Get to that. But that's the implication. That's to live according to knowledge. You understand God's design. You're very aware of it. And you're treating your wife in accordance. That is, you treat her with gentleness and sensitivity that way. Paul says in Colossians 3, 
19 for husbands to love your wives. And don't be wrathful or harsh with them. Because that can be our tendency, right? Let me just insert now an aside. I think it's important just to say. It's not the main subject here. Husbands, it is never okay to physically assault or harm your wife. Never. To take advantage of her, quote, weakness that way is never okay. In fact, it's a crime. And I just, I want to say that as loud as I can. In the culture we lived in, in these heightened sensitivities, there's just much more awareness and reports of domestic violence or domestic abuse. And sadly, if you followed news over the past several years, sadly, we see that also coming out of complementarian context. And that's really sad, but it's true. And that shouldn't be. That's a distortion of what we're teaching here of complementarianism. So some have linked those two inseparably. If you believe in complementarianism, then, then it's going to lead to abuse. That's a distortion, but it does happen. Where men take this role of authority leadership and think that it means they can harm their wives. Abuse their wives. And then there's too many reports, I think, of churches where women reach out for help. And the church's response is, submit better. Just submit better. And he won't do that. It's tragic. That's not, that's not the advice you're going to get if you come for help, women. At all. It's wrong. It's not a matter of a wife submitting better. It's a distortion of the husband's role. Now, there are other forms of domestic abuse, just to use that very general heading that I know needs lots of definition. By that, I just mean persistent, sustained, oppressive behavior. And yes, it's not all husbands to wife. It can, it can go the other way too, but I'm just speaking to husbands here. There are other forms of that. Normally, that kind of what we might call abusive behavior is typically about power and a desire to control. Yes, there's sin in marriage. <laughs> we'll sin against each other and we seek reconciliation and we seek to grow. That's going to happen. We're going to say things that we, we uh, need to ask forgiveness for. We're going to do things. But I'm talking about a persistent, consistent, oppressive kind of behavior that may not always be physical. It can be sexual assault. It can be coercion and threats to hurt or to harm property. It can be intimidation, threatening again. It can be isolation, loss of freedom, restrict contact with family. It can be psychological or verbal. The 
constant put down in criticisms and demeanings. It can be economic, withholding resources. There are lots of ways domestic forms of, again, this kind of oppressive behavior can manifest itself. Wives, you're not called to submit to that. Why do I say that? You're not called to allow sin to reign and to enable sinful behavior. That's not love. Costly love in a marriage, sacrificial Christ-like love in a marriage is resisting that type of abusive behavior. Confronting and getting help. So, that's all I'll say. There's a lot, lot to say. I just, I want to just acknowledge it, recognize it. And oh, if you find yourself there or wondering, do reach out. Do seek help. Seek to listen and understand. I know it can be scary to, to reach out, especially to a man. Reach out to another woman, but get help. Want to see healthy marriages, not in any way oppressive, abusive ones. So let me just close that aside. Let me come back now. It's a, quite a detour, I know, on that, but I just want to say it. That's the first implication. The husband's leadership is not domineering or harsh use of authority. Second implication, a husband should seek to know his wife in her unique feminine character as God's design. Just seek to know her. Live with her in an, with knowledge. <laughs> this kind of knowledge of how God designed her. And so here's the first clue, husbands. She's not a man. <laughs> She's not. We don't believe in that here. And she is not a man. Right? That is, she doesn't think and feel and process like you do. It's usually the first surprising shock in marriage along with many other things. She is a woman. She is different by design that way. And I know that can be the greatest mystery to men, right? to husbands, like figuring that out. But that's what we're called to do. I know also, though, it can really be a source of frustration, of resentment, of anger. And so... He says, I want you to live, isn't this a timely, relevant word, to live with her according to knowledge of who she is? And yes, your wife will express those characteristics different than my wife, and you, you need to know your wife. And isn't that the lifelong pursuit in a one-flesh relationship? She's not your roommate. She's your wife. One flesh. And instead of as it's prone and easy to do, resent her design to delight in God's design, God's good design. Yes, it's distorted. Yes, there's sin. Yes, there's things. That's part of marriage. We know that. Paul says in that other text in Ephesians 5 that I started with, love, husbands, love your wife as your own body. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. He said, because she's your own flesh, your one flesh. That's that union of marriage. 
that is so profound, unlike anything else. So seek to know your wife. Live, treat her according to knowledge. That's first, here's second exhortation. Treat her with honor. Treat her with honor. Show her, that's what he just goes on to say. He's just, he's really giving more, in case you don't quite get what it means to live according to knowledge. Well, this helps flesh that out. Treat her with honor. Show her honor. Now, again, I want you to pause here and just feel how radically countercultural this is for Peter to write. You're asking husbands to show honor to their wives? I thought it was the other way. Right? Don't you show honor to the one in authority? Didn't you just say back in chapter 2, honor the king? And now he reverses it. No, it's not a mutual submission, but there is a mutual respect, for sure, and honoring. Yes, husbands, honor your wives. Again, counterculture. She's not your property. She's not your servant. All the demeaning views of marriage and wives that existed in Peter's day and have existed throughout history, how, how radically different this command is in the first century. Honor. Show honor to your wives. That's part of your leadership. Again, he's just, I think, echoing what Jesus taught him and the other disciples about leadership, about those in authority. Don't be like the Gentiles who lorded over them. Remember, he taught them, Jesus taught them that. Don't be like thinking what's due you since you're in authority But serve, lay down your life, pick up the towel, wash the feet. Remember, Jesus demonstrated all what that kind of leadership means. Lay down your life type of leadership. Honor. Again, I just, I'm struck by that. Paul, Paul's main command to husbands is to love. Love. We'll get to that. Love. But Peter chooses honor. Respect. That's so countercultural. So, do you honor your wife? Well, I think it would include kind and affirming speech, protection and provision, marital faithfulness. So it would all be a way of honoring your wife, not demeaning her, not belittling her, not ridiculing her or shaming her. Be careful how you talk of her in front of others. Protecting her honor. That includes with children, right? Protecting your wife's honor. Not letting it be demeaned. Part of that protection and provision, caring for your wife, honoring her, marital faithfulness, unfaithfulness, sexual unfaithfulness of any kind in marriage dishonors her. Deeply. So that's part of honor. But notice here, Peter again is in a Christian context. So he's not thinking of husband with an unbelieving wife. But no, he he elevates this. Do you see it? Here's that as clause now. Just like he did in the first one. Live with her according to knowledge as this. So treat her, grant her honor as. Here's the perspective you're to have of your wife. As a fellow heir of the grace of life. That is... The second note under honor, she 
is or treat her or regard her as spiritually equal. Recognize her as spiritually equal. Equal as an heir of God's grace that produces life. As a fellow Christian believer, and I love how he phrases that, and fellow heir, a joint, she's equal. She's the same heir that you are of the grace that produces life. The same inheritance, again, in a culture where inheritance always passed through the son. Remember, women equal heirs of the greatest inheritance that is in Christ. He is a joint heir of the grace of life, the grace that produces life. So equal spiritual status, equal inheritance. She is fully an heir. So do we do we see her like that? She is chosen by God. She is redeemed by Christ. She is valued as God's child. Oh, husbands, do you, do you view your wife that way? First and foremost, as most fundamental. Thinking of her design by God and her redemption in Christ as a child of God. Do you See her like that and and does it cause you to grant her honor? Does it affect the way that you treat her and see her and look at her and value her? So, again, I love this text of Peter because we're we're back into this complementary context that we've been seeing all through the scripture. Different complementary design and role in marriage that we've just seen. Headship, leadership, submission, helpership. Does not imply inferiority, does it? He couldn't say it any clearer. Yes, husbands, lead in this way and grant her honor, but she's a fellow heir of the grace of life, spiritually equal. So again, we see it. It doesn't imply inferiority of women. Do you see her like that? It implies, doesn't it? The implication is that the husband is first submitted to Christ. For this to be valuable to a husband as an incentive, as a, as a reason to grant her honor, must mean that he is submitted to Christ, that this matters to him, that this is her wife's, his wife's status. He, he, the husband, is under Christ's lordship. He's accountable for how he treats and leads his wife. What a weighty thing. And so this is very high in the husband's view. My wife is a believer who belongs to Christ before she belongs to me. How do I treat her? Hmm. Let me finish third with the incentive. So Peter finishes. It's an incentive, but really it's an implied warning, isn't it? The implied warning. Do you see it there at the end? So live, live. Here it is. Say it. A husband's failure to treat his wife with honor and live according to this knowledge will hinder his relationship with the Lord. (laughs) See how he says it? After giving these exhortations to live with her according to knowledge, to treat her with honor as a fellow heir, so that your prayers will not be hindered. What an ending. What an interesting ending. Didn't expect him to go there so that your prayers will not be hindered. A husband's failure in these things affects his relationship with the Lord. Your prayer. God won't answer your prayers. 
Again, assuming this is a Christian husband, and that matters to a husband, your prayers are going to be hindered. What does it tell you? God deeply cares how you treat your wife. He'll block your prayers. Your relationship will be hindered with how you treat your wife. Isn't that amazing? The spiritual dimension. Our relationship with our wives are intertwined with our relationship with the Lord. You can't separate them. You can't just compartmentalize. It will hinder, it will affect your spiritual, your relationship with the Lord. What an incentive to honor your wife and to live with her according to knowledge so that your prayers won't be hindered. Your relationship with the Lord will be right. He will hear you. He will honor you. Oh, take it to heart, husbands. What a one verse to really settle in and meditate on. How am I doing? How are we doing? In the way we honor and treat our wives. In the way we lead them. And we'll talk a little bit more on it in Ephesians 5. Bottom line, both what we said with wives last week and husbands this week, we need Christ. We need Christ to live this out. The word to husbands here, I think he pauses, as I said at the beginning, and gives this word because in our sinfulness, we are so prone to distort it. There's so much proneness. This most intimate and profound and deep of all human relationships has the greatest potential for harm and hurt, doesn't it? And how we need to be so guarded in our leading, loving, living with, and honoring our wives. We need Christ for that. We need His grace. Wives, you need His grace to lovingly, with dignity, submit to this leadership, as we said last week, even in times you don't agree with it. But this is God's design for marriage. He has a grand design. We'll see it next time. But this very practical design is for our holiness, isn't it? Someone said so rightly, marriage is not ultimately about our happiness, but our holiness. This is where that sanctification is lived out in the most beautiful of all human relationships. May God give us grace to believe it and to live it. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we just feel our need for grace in time of need and in our marriages. We, we want our marriages to magnify you. We want it to be such an expression of your good design for our joy. But we need help. We need grace. We need forgiveness and repentance, humility, gentleness. So would you grant that to us as husbands and as wives that we might live this out to your glory. We ask in your son's name. Amen.